to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. We're going to start by stepping back in time just a little bit. It was 1999, the year Y2K had me facing my first apocalypse. The year the Backstreet Boys told us why. The year the Matrix made every teenager get really into philosophy. SpongeBob SquarePants premiered on Nickelodeon for the first time, and the first Pokemon movie was released in theaters, unexpectedly making children and the mothers they dragged along cry. I was eight years old, and this was the year I joined my first fantasy football league. Now, my dad had been playing for a few, few years by this point. I remembered watching him scan the sports section of the newspaper on Monday and Tuesday mornings to check his player's stats and add up his scores by hand. He'd then take that score sheet and he'd give it to the guy at his office who ran the league who would track all the scores and then let my dad know if he had won or lost that week. That was pretty archaic. But now, in 1999, the internet, which had been slowly creeping into our homes and connecting our computers, opened up new possibilities. Sites like Yahoo, ESPN, or CBS Sports started offering online fantasy football. They would track all your stats and all your players for you. As long as my mom wasn't using the phone, the world of online fantasy football was open to us. So my dad decided to set up a league. He started with my brother and I, um, but then in order for me to join, he had to lie about my age because Yahoo won't let eight-year-olds have an account. It was probably the first lie I ever told, or at least the first lie I ever told with my dad. Um, and then to flesh out the league, he invited cousins, nephews, and friends from church. Trying to be clever, he named it the Slovakinese Football League because his family is Slovak and my mom's is Japanese. So we just combined that. My brother won that inaugural season behind future Hall of Famer and former grocery store bagger, Kurt Warner. I am still a part of that league today. In fact, I run it now after I took over from my dad several years ago. It is our 19th season of playing fantasy football. Now, I've only ever won the league once, but I beat my brother in the championship game to do it, so I feel pretty proud about that. Now, I'm in three leagues, including the DR league that we have here. And that is a great league. We have a live draft at Buffalo Wild Wings every year to begin the season. We trash talk, we eat wings, and we pick our players. Then throughout the year, since most football games are played on Sunday, we can trash talk each other some more after church. Obviously, none of us are checking the scores on our phones like during church. I mean, yes, we can because we have come so far from the days of my dad checking all the stats in the next morning's paper, but clearly we're not doing that this morning. That is disrespectful. Now, this year, I would say the DR League is particularly exciting for me because I have a great team. Now, I know none of you want to hear about my fake football team. None of you want to hear how I crushed Abby in week one or how I beat Ben in week two, Brad in week three, Dave in week four, and and Ryan just last week. None of you care that I am undefeated and in first place. Oh, especially not May. She doesn't care because she's in second place. And she still has Odell Beckham Jr. Or not, actually. Sorry about that, May. He's out for the rest of the year. 
Okay, sorry about that. Getting into a bit of a trash talk up here in the middle of my message. I'm getting a bit off topic. But fantasy football can get pretty competitive. It's only natural with something like this. It's this zero-sum game. It's a pie with limited pieces. You know, when two teams play, only one wins. At the end of the season, there is only one champion. You know, and just trying to get there, you compete over players. You try to build the championship team. You know, there are only so many good players out there. If you have a good quarterback, I don't. If I have a good running back, you don't. But if any of those players then get hurt, then that's even less to go around, like Odell Beckham Jr. may. The pie gets smaller. And if I win, you lose. And it's like real football. Football is a battle to take the one ball and to capture territory from your opponent. There's 100 yards, and each team's goal is to take it all. You score when you capture the whole field and take that one ball into their zone. All sports from basketball to Quidditch, most reality competitions from The Bachelor to American Idol and many board games from Monopoly to Catan are all zero-sum games. There is only one champion, one snitch, one bachelor, one winner, one boardwalk, and only so many spots on the map. The limited resources drive competition. There isn't enough to go around. It's scarcity and scarcity drives competition. Now, creating competition from scarcity is good and well enough for sports and games, but what about life? We get competitive about our grades in school, getting the best in our class and trying to outshine our classmates. We compete for approval and favor from our boss as we compete against our coworkers. We want to get recognition for our hard work and maybe even get jealous when someone else gets it instead. Sometimes we even get competitive about our busyness, our stress, and our exhaustion. You may have gotten the better grade, but you don't have to do school and work like I do. I'm much busier. I could get better grades than you if my life wasn't so much more stressful. Or your proposal may have gotten more attention from the boss, but that's just because yours is flashier. I didn't leave the office until late last night. In fact, I haven't been home for dinner in weeks. And we also can compete with civic pride, but I mean, this isn't quite the same because Tucson is obviously better than Phoenix. That's a fact. And then beyond civic pride is national pride because again, we live in the greatest country in the world and no one dare question that. All of these competitions in life are driven by this idea of scarcity. As if our professor only has so many A's to give out or our work can't be good without our coworkers being worse. Tucson isn't made better or worse by Phoenix's awfulness. Tucson is simply a great city for its diversity, its affordability, its culture, its people, and its comically bad drainage during monsoon season. Okay, maybe that last one isn't a point for Tucson. Take that one away. Point is, I don't have to hate Phoenix to appreciate Tucson. Appreciation for a city or a place is not scarce, yet we compete like it is. And a lot of our competitions in life have this problem. We compete because we don't believe that there is enough. Sure, sometimes that's true. There's only one scholarship. You know, if someone else gets it, we don't. There's only one promotion. If our coworker gets it, we don't. The world is limited. There is scarcity. But as Ryan taught in the first week of Into the Storm, we serve the God of enough. Just as every day God provided enough flour and oil for Elijah, the widow, and her son, he provides for us. Well, his provision may not take away from Take, may not always take the form. Just cutting it out. Sorry. Well, his provision may not always take the 
form we expect or what we want, it is always enough. When we struggle with that, when we doubt that, we create scarcity where there is enough. We compete with our neighbor rather than love them. But we do something more than just that as we become like the Israelites and as we return this morning to the story of Elijah and his famous competition. So we return to 1 Kings to continue the story. And as we return to the story of Elijah, we need to remember the state of Israel at the time. Israel has split into two, with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin making up the southern kingdom of Judah, and the rest of the tribes making up the northern kingdom, still called Israel. Both kingdoms had their share of good and bad kings, but right now Israel has their worst yet, Ahab. Under his rule, injustice and idolatry reigned, the worst of which amounted to child sacrifice to pagan gods. His wife Jezebel was the daughter of a foreign king who brought her gods Baal and Asherah with her, and the, along with the pagan practices. She held a lot of influence over Ahab, and in the Bible, she is singled out for being particularly evil. Now, because of their evil and the idolatry and injustice rampant throughout Israel, God sent Elijah to announce to the king and the queen that Israel will face a terrible drought. There will be no rain for years, not until God announces the return of rain through his prophet Elijah. If you were here last week, you learned about that part of the story of Elijah's prayer for rain to return to Israel and how God answered that prayer. But before God displayed his power through water, there was a competition to see which God would show his power through fire. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Now, while he was still with the widow and her son in the midst of the drought, God sent Elijah back to Ahab. Later on in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Ahab is angry, very angry at Elijah. He blames Elijah for all of his troubles and he has been searching desperately for Elijah these last few years. Now, last week, you may have been wondering, wondering then why Ahab would so immediately listen to Elijah when Elijah told him the rain was finally coming. Well, this morning, you're going to see why Ahab was more inclined to listen to the prophet of God, no matter how much he hated him, when Elijah first unexpectedly showed up at his door and called him out. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wished and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood of the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agree. Elijah comes and he sets the challenge. 
It's winner take all. First God to set fire to the sacrifice is the true God. In one corner are the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah that Jezebel brought with her into Israel. With them came idols and the temples, lewd and sexual worship and child sacrifice. In the other is Elijah, where he stands as the lone prophet of God, the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, who cared for them in the desert, and who delivered them to the promised land that they lived in to that day. So considering all of that, how did the Israelites get here? Because with everything God did for them to this point, how did they still turn to idols? Well, because to the Israelites, it wasn't enough. God had given them enough for today, but he had not yet given them for tomorrow. Like with the manna that God sent while they wandered in the desert, God only gave them enough for each day. If they tried to collect enough for the next, it would spoil and they would get sick. They had to trust that he would provide enough again tomorrow, the next day and the day after that. That trust for them was all that stood between enough and scarcity. So the Israelites turned to idols out of fear of scarcity. What if enough wasn't enough or what if enough ran out? So they wanted more than enough. They didn't want to have to just trust that God would provide enough for them and depend on him day after day. They wanted to know that their tomorrows were secure. See, when the Israelites committed idolatry, they didn't just stop worshiping God. Instead of abandoning and replacing God, they just started worshiping something else too. Something else that, you know, could help cover in case God wasn't enough. So they hedged their bets. When they made the golden calf, they didn't forget God. They wanted to see God. The God who delivered them from slavery wasn't enough. They couldn't see him. So despite everything he had done for them, they didn't trust him either. So Aaron made them something more. When God gave Solomon great wisdom and power, it wasn't enough. He couldn't just depend on the power God gave him, so he got himself some more. He married many foreign women to create alliances and expand his power. But his wives brought foreign gods with them to Israel. Solomon worshiped them too because he wanted more than enough. Idolatry like competition is rooted in scarcity. God is the God of enough. We too commit idolatry when we forget that. When out of fear of scarcity, we invest our trust and faith into anything else. When out of fear that God might not be enough and we need a backup plan. We may not wholly bend in our faith in God to place our faith in something else, but we'd rather just be safe than sorry. And generally, we think of idolatry only as replacing God, of, of putting something else up on the pedestal, of putting our faith in something besides God, worshiping anything other than God, or elevating something above God. When I was little, I was worried that I was committing idolatry by believing in Jesus and Santa. I reasoned that I was safe as long as I loved Jesus more. Now, it's not to say that Santa is an idol, but if we only view idolatry as replacing God, we can miss the ways that we are guilty like the Israelites. Certainly, I don't put my faith in money instead of God, I just want to be secure. Or I know God provides, but it's worth it to work these long hours to make sure that we always have enough. Our faith is in God, but we're preparing just in case. We may not have replaced God, but neither did the Israelites. So when Elijah challenged Ahab and the Israelites, he didn't tell them to turn back to God. He told them to choose. Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. And this reminds me of something Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Idolatry is trying to serve two masters. It's serving God and whatever else we are giving that power, be it money, possessions, or even our grades or jobs. Our masters compete for our love and we can only love one. The Israelites tried to serve two masters. They thought they could follow God and Baal. Maybe two gods are better than one. They didn't trust that God was enough, so they made alliances and joined in the worship of foreign gods. We'll see what happened when the Israelites' two masters competed, but before that, what about us? What is our other master? How are we hedging our bets? What is our backup plan just in case God isn't enough? That's a big question, and it's hard to answer honestly. I doubt any of us openly recognize our own idolatry, because nowadays it's more subversive, more subtle than a golden statue that we bow down to. That's what I'm trying to help each of us to see. We can think that we are still making God our priority and still have an idol. We can make sure we love Jesus more and still be guilt guilty. Our idols are whatever we are putting our faith in besides God wherever we store our trust, or whatever our backup plan is, just in case God isn't enough. So to help us examine that question of what is our other master, here are a few more. First, what's competing for our time? We need to look at our lives and ask, what do we stop for? We are busy. We have many demands on our time, but our time is limited. Pastor and author Tim Suttle writes, in our fast-paced society, where time is a precious and, sacred or and scarce commodity, we can easily identify the things that we hold most sacred because we will pause for them in reverence. What we stop for, what we give our limited time to, reveals our priorities and our values. What is competing for our time? What are we holding sacred by giving our time to? We stop for God. We set aside time, this time, to gather and to worship God. We stop for our families. We pause our busy lives and return home from school to spend time with our parents. Or we set aside time to play with, to take care of, and invest in our children. We give time to our friends. We go out of our way to help them when their car breaks down or just sit down over coffee with them. We stop for these things because they are important. They are sacred. We stop to love God and to love others. But that's not all we stop for. Things that can be good can instead become idols when they compete for our time, when time is taken away from God and what is truly important. Hard work or grades become idols when we give more and more time to working than we do to God or to the relationships around us. Maybe we start to regularly skip church and Bible studies to work. We become unavailable to our friends and our family we say in our actions that God isn't enough. Instead, we rely on our own efforts, our own power. We need to give that time to class, to our grades, because if we struggle or don't do as well as we'd like, God isn't enough. We need to give everything to work. We have to show our boss that we work harder and longer than everyone else, because without this job, God isn't enough. Romantic relationships become idols when they consume more and more of our time. We only have time for a boyfriend or girlfriend. 
but no one else as we draw more and more distant from our other friends. If they live in another town, we travel every weekend to go visit them instead of investing in a church community and the other relationships here. Because without this relationship, we are unloved, we are insignificant. We need this relationship because God isn't enough. Sports can also become an idol when they consume more and more of our time. When we sit on our phones, checking scores in the middle of the message, when we find ourselves distracted and ever present because we're keeping up with every game or spend more time studying players for our fantasy team than studying the Bible. For many, Sunday is no longer God's day, but football's day. It becomes more than a pastime when we base our identity not in Christ, but in the teams we root for. We vicariously prove our superiority when our team wins, real or fantasy. God is not enough because we must feel better than our rival. What else do you stop for? It's not that anything we spend time on is an idol. We have to make time for work, for school, for errands and chores, for family and friends. Relationships and hobbies are good. But when the demands on our time compete, what we, what we choose reveals our priorities. What we always stop for we hold sacred. We can also determine our other masters by asking what is competing for our money. Well, money itself can become an idol, as you recall, money is what Jesus uses as an example of another master. How we use our money also reveals our idols. Money, like time, is limited, and how we prioritize our spending and use our money reveals our values. God calls us to tithe, to give a portion of our money back to him, for his purposes. He doesn't ask for all of it, just that we give out of our heart. Our tithes are worship, a declaration that we trust God's provision and believe that he is enough. When we make a budget, the first things we put in it are what is most important to us. Do we set our tithe first and then our savings? Or do we start with entertainment and then make sure our shopping budget has room for the newest fashions? If you don't have a budget, look at your spending. Where do we spend our money? How do we handle our resources? Perhaps we have to buy that new iPhone X, regardless of our resources. We have to have the newest, coolest gadget. Apple is our master and we are bound to that newest, coolest thing. We need, to, need it to impress others to feel important and significant. God tells us that we are loved and cared for. God tells us that we are invaluable but the newest, coolest item for sale tells others that we are important. Or we are so tight with our money that we cling to it. We never spend any of it. We claw our way through work to get it and then we hold it tightly because we find comfort in having money. That's not to say that saving money or financial discipline is bad. That's very good. But when we go from being stewards of our money to being controlled by it, we are like the Israelites who collected manna for tomorrow just in case God didn't provide. That fear keeps us from being generous with our money, from loving others with our blessings, and it gives control over our lives to the money we have instead of to God. We fail to trust that God is enough and that security becomes our master. So what does our spending reveal about our priorities? Where does our money go? Our resources are limited. How we manage that scarcity and handle the competition that comes from it reveals the masters we serve. Do we show that we trust God by giving back to him, by investing in his purposes, and being good stewards who save what we need and give generously? Or do we invest in things of this world to assure ourselves of our worth? Do we worry that God isn't enough and hedge our bets? 
Do we invest out of God's provision or in case he doesn't provide? Each of us should ask, what's competing for our money? Then ask, what's competing for our anger? What angers us tells us what we value. It offends us because it goes against what we believe to be true or to be important. Jesus experienced anger. Jesus was angered by the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day who clung to status and power over serving others. He was angered by the temple becoming a place of commerce where, commerce where people were taken advantage of and were exploited. He wasn't angered by Israel's state as a nation, which at the time was under control of Rome, despite the restoration of Israel as a political power being one of the primary expectations of the Jewish people had for the Messiah at that time. Jesus was angered by the hypocrisy of religious leaders and injustice amongst God's people. What are we angered by? A lot of people very angered by politics. There are all sorts of issues. People of all sides getting very angry about them. I'm not getting into specific issues or specific sides, but when we get angry, it's good to ask, would Jesus be angry too? Would Jesus be angered by what we are angered by? Or would he be angry about the vitriol and hatred that is coming out of our anger? Would he be angry about how we are treating one another? While we should be involved in what is happening in our world, does our anger and how we treat one another in our anger reveal that we have made an idol out of a worldly system in a broken world rather than in God, the perfect king of a perfect kingdom? There are many things that anger us daily. Bad drivers on the road, the barista who messed up our coffee, the professor who graded us in our opinion unfairly, or the groupmate who didn't do their share of the work. We get angry at our spouses when we argue or our children when they misbehave. Anger and emotion is a part of our lives and not all of our anger reveals an idol. But do we get angry at what would anger God? Or would Jesus be more upset at our anger? In that gap, we can discover our other master as our anger reveals our values. Finally, what competes for our joy? Joy is obviously a good thing. God wants us to feel joy. It is included as a fruit in the, of the spirit by Paul. We can find joy in many things. We can find it in God or a good meal or a good book. We can find joy in the time we spend with our friends or traveling to new places. Joy is a blessing. But when we begin to pursue the source of our joy more than God, it becomes our master. We can find too much of a good thing when the source of our joy is not God. We may find joy in traveling, but that becomes our master if our whole life becomes about living for the next trip, all our focus, our time, and money committed to the next adventure. We may find joy in good food, but that becomes an idol when we become focused on making the most of our thrice-a-day ritual, living for the next meal, or focused on the next new culinary experience. We may find joy in our friends, and then it becomes an idol when we live only for the next night out. The time in between just feels empty. In our pursuit of joy, we miss the contentment that comes from knowing God is enough and instead rely on our idols. So before we judge the idolatry of the Israelites and decide that we are not like them, we need to consider too, what is our other master?
we should ask ourselves what's competing for our time, what's competing for our money, what's competing for our anger, and what's competing for our joy. If we are serving another master, we need to identify it because as Jesus warns, no one can serve two masters. And we must do as Elijah challenges the Israelites to do and not keep wavering between the two. While we do, we create idols and we force God to compete. And as we return to Elijah's challenge of the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, we see how God handles competition. Back in 1 Kings 18, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and Asherah to go first. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and they placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. Things don't go well for them. So Elijah st starts engaging a bit of trash talk. He tells them to shout louder because maybe Baal's just distracted. Maybe he's away or he's asleep. Maybe he's using the bathroom. And that's exactly what the prophets try. They shout louder and then they start cutting themselves as is their custom to appease their God with their own blood. That gives you a picture of what their God was like, but still nothing happens. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. The prophets of Baal and Asherah had failed. They did everything in their power to summon their gods and ignite their sacrifice. But now it's Elijah's turn and he does something unexpected. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of, the, name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar. He cut into the bowl into pieces, and he laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did it, they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trenches. Elijah soaks the altar and, he, and the sacrifice with water. Now this story is well known, and, and I imagine some of you know how it ends. So you are not surprised when, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command, O Lord. Answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. Immediately fire comes down, it lights the altar, it burns up the sacrifice. But let's back up and let's look at Elijah's actions objectively. The goal is to set the altar on fire, but Elijah is seemingly doing everything wrong. It is as if he is actively trying to lose as he douses the altar and his chances. Well, he appears 
to be setting himself up for failure. The prophets do all the right things. They perform all the ceremonies. They say all the right prayers, but it didn't matter. To be very clear, neither side was setting their altar on fire. Didn't matter what anybody did. Elijah knows he has as good of a chance of setting his altar on fire as the prophets of Baal and Asherah. So instead, Elijah did everything in his power to make it painfully obvious that it wasn't him who set the altar on fire. He willfully tries to lose so that he can receive no credit for what God is about to do. It isn't testing God's power any more than throwing a ball high as we can test gravity. That ball is coming down whether Tom Brady or Roland Miller throws it. Likewise, God is setting that altar on fire no matter what Elijah did. Elijah recognized that this wasn't about competition. This wasn't really a contest between God and, and Baal or Elijah and the prophets. There was only one possible outcome. The one true God would light his altar. The false gods would not. The Israelites would see that God was all-powerful and that Baal was powerless. The prophets did everything in their power while Elijah got out of the way. He saw the story about competition was actually a story about submission. Competition comes from a perspective of scarcity, that there's not enough. When we hold the perspective of scarcity, we hedge our bets. We follow other masters and we put our trust in idols like the Israelites did. Submission comes from knowing that God is enough. From submitting to him like Elijah. We admit that we cannot serve two masters because we are limited, but God is not. We need to learn submission from Elijah. We need to learn to take everything competing for us, everything competing for our time, our money, our anger and joy, and submit it to God. Every other master is as powerless as Baal, so we submit to our all-powerful God because he is enough. We stop for God because we know whether we are... We stop for God because we know whatever we are doing is not as important. We know life will go on and that the world will keep spinning without us. We submit our time to him because we know that he is in control. We give our money to God because we trust that he provides. Just as he cares for the lilies of the field and the birds in the air, he cares for us. We submit our resources to him because we know that he is worth far more. We align our anger with God because we know this is a broken world. We take offense not in how we are wrong, but in how God's people are hurt. We submit our anger to him because we trust that he is just. We root our joy in God because we trust that he is the source of all joy. Rather than being consumed by the pursuit of earthly joy, we find contentment in God. We submit our joy to him because we know in him it is far deeper. We submit to God because our idols are powerless. They will always fail us as Baal and Asherah failed. No other master is worthy of our love. So as we depart from here this morning, consider what submitting to God looks like in your life. What changes if we choose him over our other masters? First, we stop competing and start cooperating. Competition comes out of scarcity, but the opposite of scarcity isn't surplus or abundance. It's enough. And when you submit to God, you trust that he is the God of enough. You abandon the lifeboat mentality of the world that says there's only so much room in the boat as everyone fights for survival. With God, there's enough room for everyone. So we cooperate, work together, serve and help others, give generously, 
instead of trying to get the upper hand on a coworker, work with them for the better of all. Instead of feeling jealous of your neighbor's success, celebrate with them. There is enough to share. You don't need to compete because even if the resources of the world might be limited, the kingdom is unlimited. Then stop hedging your bets. Identify the other masters we serve. Ask yourself what is competing for your time, money, anger, and joy. Examine yourself. Then be ready to shed your other masters. Take it to God in prayer. Study scripture. Get to know God. It's hard to trust what we don't know, but God wants to, to know and to be known by us. You don't need to collect manna for tomorrow. You don't need to serve another master in case God isn't enough. You don't need a backup plan. You serve the God of enough. Trust him. Elijah did. Elijah knew that he didn't need to compete. His God was enough. So when God sent him to challenge the prophets of Baal and Asherah, he obeyed. He let them do everything in their power to summon their God to light the altar. It didn't matter what they did. And it didn't matter what he did, so he got out of the way. He demonstrated that it wasn't his power that would win the day. He submitted to God, and after God demonstrated his power, all the people saw it. And they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. We serve the God of Elijah who burned the altar, who brought the rain, who sustained the widow and her child. We serve the God of enough. We don't need anything else. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you that you are the God of enough. Thank you that you provide everything we need. Help us to trust that. Help us as we submit to you. Walk with us as we discover and identify our other masters, what else we are serving, how we are hedging our bets in case you don't provide. May we submit those to you. May we trust that you are enough for us today as you were for Elijah. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.